Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning, and we are so glad that you have gathered today with us to worship the Lord. And this morning, before our call to before our call to worship, I want to remind you why we do a call to worship. We do a call to worship because it is to turn our attention and our focus toward God. Because worship is not about us or about what we get from this time that we have together. But it's about the honor and the praise and the glory that we give to the God who has saved us. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is good and gracious. And from Him comes the gospel, the good news of our salvation through Jesus Christ. And because he is the God of our salvation, every scripture that we read, every confessional statement that we read, every prayer and every song and even our offering, it is all lifted to God. And so today, I invite you to stand with us as we are called to worship him. And our call to worship comes from the Word of God. And here's what the Scripture says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us worship him. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And as you go there, we're going to have a word of prayer here in just a minute. And we're now in that part of Colossians that hits right at home. And so we move from the indicatives to the imperatives. And so... I think it's, I just wanted to say that up front and let you know that a message like this must fall on my heart first before it is delivered to you. And so with that, let's pray. Father, this is your holy word that we're going to read. And God, as we read your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts and minds and do the work that only he can do to to pierce deep into our souls, to convict us of sin, and to conform us to the image of your Son. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will bring those that may not know Christ to a saving knowledge of Him and an understanding that any and all sins can be forgiven if we simply believe in what Christ has done for us, and repent of our sins. And Lord, I pray that the power of the word will go forth, that you would, as was just stated, that you would let this fall on my heart and do your work in me, and then that the people here will receive your word, and that nothing but your word will go forth in power. Thank you for your grace and mercy on us. 
Thank you for the songs that have been lifted up to prepare our hearts for what is here in Scripture. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we read God's Word. Today's message is, is called Putting Sin to Death. And we're going to read Colossians 3, verse 5 through 11. And we'll look specifically at three of the verses that we're going to read today. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Following 9-11, President Bush, George W. Bush at the time, he called a joint session of Congress. And in that joint session of Congress, he identified specific terrorist groups and terrorist-sponsoring nations as the greatest threat to global peace and the United States. To a shocked nation, he recognized that we have real enemies. And in that speech, he identified the greatest enemy and threat to peace and freedom was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Now, I share that with you just to think about enemies. And I ask you this question. We're not talking about the United States of America here in this sermon. We're talking about the Christian life. Who would be the greatest enemy and threat to you and me? Who would be or what would be the greatest enemy or threat to the believer? And the answer is simple, but the reality is we complicate it because we tend to think that the greatest enemy is out there. We tend to look at the world and then we want to identify people or things that we think, well, that is the enemy. But the reality is, is that the greatest enemy and threat to you and me, it is sin. It is sin. Sin is our greatest enemy. Because it is the greatest evil that exists because it is the enemy of our souls. And that sin is not something that we would say is let's look out there, but that sin is in us. It is in us. Sin is the insidious desire within our our fallen natures to dethrone God and enthrone or, or to enthrone self and as a result serve evil. And for that reason, other than knowing God as He has revealed Himself in the gospel. Nothing should be more important to the Christian than knowing sin 
or having a biblically informed understanding of sin. And that is exactly what Paul is doing right here in verse 5. He is identifying our greatest enemy, and that great enemy is sin. And so in the beginning, there's some good news, and then there's just some reality news. Good news is this. The good news is that we have died to sin. Now, in what sense do we say that? Well, if you look at the text, it says, put to death, therefore. And that, trans- that, that conjunction, therefore, is pointing us back to what has already been said. And so, therefore, helps the church, helps the believers that, are, that are, would be reading this, it helps them to understand what Paul has already said. Paul has outlined true conversion and union with Christ. That is, when you believe the gospel, when you became a Christian, when you became a follower of Christ, you and I became united to him and his finished work. In other words, you died to the condemning penalty of sin. We said that last week. You died to the condemning penalty of sin, and you died to the controlling rule of sin. You, Christian, if you're a believer, you are no longer condemned. You are no longer under condemnation because Christ died for your sins. And he has given you forgiveness and salvation. And even better than that, you're no longer chained to sin. You have been set free. And because of this, and the reason we can say that is, is because Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago for our sins. And not only did he die, but he was raised from the dead. So here's the other part of the good news, right? You were raised with Christ to live a new life that is centered on Jesus. That's what we said last week. That is pictured in baptism where we, uh, where a person shows that they were buried with Christ and then they rise or they come up out of the water to walk in the newness of life. But here's the question. What does that new life look like? What, what, what does it mean that we are walking in a new life? Well, the previous verses say, seek those things that are above and set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is. But I don't want us to get mistaken here, okay? Seek things above is not let's live in cotton candy clouds and just walk around with smiles and sunshine glowing off of our faces. Now, I don't want to take away from the joy of our salvation. But what I want you to understand is that the new life that we're walking in is not a walk in the park. It is a walk onto a battlefield. It is a walk onto a battlefield. If you don't believe me, let's just hold our place here for just a second. Take your Bibles and go over to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And I want you to hear what Paul says after he says that we are walking or living, that we are raised with Christ to walk in a new life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, listen to how Paul describes the Christian life. 
He says, so you also, you who have died to sin and been raised with Christ, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin. That means your body, that your body, your body parts. I mean, it's pretty explicit language there. Don't submit your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What that verse shows us as we pair it with Colossians 3 is that the joy of salvation must become the drumbeat of a holy war. Every true believer is at war with their sinful natures that remain. Thus, if we are going to live the Christian life and follow Jesus, then we must purpose in our hearts, brothers and sisters, to wage holy war against sin, to kill sin, to put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, really, the key truth in the text that we just read and, and, and it is a snapshot for the entire Christian life, would be this right here. We must continually kill the sin that remains in us. I mean, that is the battle cry of the Christian life. That is a real, simple, clear, direct, bold, divinely indicated definition of the Christian life. John Owen one of, the, one of the great Puritans said this, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. So this morning we're going to look at three things. And we're going to look at three things from verses 5 to 7. We're going to look at the command. We're going to look at the catalog. And we're going to look at the compulsion that Paul presents in relationship to sin. And we're going to slow it down because we really need to dig into this to really understand the nature of indwelling sin and the duty that has been given to all of us. So let's look at the first thing. There is a command. Look at verse 5. The command is this. Put to death what is earthly in you. Pause for just a second. So the first question that emerges to me is, what does it mean to kill sin? Now, in the King James, it'll say mortify, to mortify, to massacre. The language is strong. It means to make dead, to put to death a living thing. It, 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 and think about that. I mean, to kill something. To kill a living thing means to end its ability to act. It means to, to, to end its ability to act or to exert any kind of strength or power. Paul says we are to end it. We're to kill it. We're to stop it. I mean, you could say we're to exterminate it. To eliminate it. I don't know if you've ever called exterminators to your house. Those pesky bugs that get in your house? When we call exterminators, because we do sometimes, because I don't like bugs. I don't like spiders. I don't like thousand-leggers. I don't like any of those. They, they are disgusting. And I realize that 
I look very weak right now, but that's all right. When that when that when pest control comes, I want to make sure that every last one of them have been exterminated. And if they're not, they're coming back. I mean, that's the, that, that's the tone here. Paul says we need to have a view of our sin that we want all of it exterminated, that we want to slay every bit of it, every rebel power that remains in us, wipe it out. You're to kill or put to death what? Look what he says. He says, what is earthly in you? So the next question that I ask is, well, okay, we get it. So to kill sin to means to end its, to end its strength and its ability to act. But, but what exactly does he say? What is earthly in you? And I, and I draw your attention to the wording of the text because it's very clear. I mean, look at it closely. What is earthly inside of you? He is making us do an internal check of ourselves And this is where we would emphasize the doctrine of indwelling sin. Paul here is referring, when he says, what is earthly in you, he is referring to the old nature that defined the way we lived our lives before we met Christ. Our old natures controlled what we did. We sin because we're sinners. And that resulted in specific actions. And he provides those in lists. But what I want you to see here is, is listen, listen to me. When you became a Christian, God did not remove the sin nature. Instead, he gave you a new nature. Now, I get it. We all would like to say, well, I sure wish he would have removed the sin nature. Well, agreed. But the reality is, right here, he did not. It remains And and as a result, the Holy Spirit has come in and brought us a new nature. And now, do you know what's going on in the heart of the believer? There is a warfare. There is a battle that is going on against the, the, the new nature brought by the Spirit and the old nature and its desires. In fact, one of the true signs that a person has been converted, truly born again, truly saved, truly a Christian, is that suddenly your relationship to sin has completely changed. The things that you used to do just freely and give no thought to, now those things bother you. You hate those things. You cry out to God, I wish they would not be, and you desire to be changed, if that's you and you're confessing Christian, that's a good sign. So, 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 so what, he, what we see here is, is that sin still dwells in the believer. And here's what I want you to, 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 to identify or write down. I want you to write this down, that there are two things about indwelling sin. One, it always abides in us. Sin is always abiding in us. It is always abiding in us. Let me show you this in a few verses. Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, and you can turn over there if you want to, or it's there on the screen. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, my old nature. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Now, you know what I love about that? 
I appreciate the fact that the Apostle Paul is just helpfully transparent. There is no hyper-spiritualizing himself. There's no trying to put the suit coat on and act like he's got it all together. There's no such thing as Paul the super-Christian. There's no, he's not telling us, you know, I just let go and let God and I'm good. <laughs> None of that nonsense. I mean, look what he says. He says, sin dwells in me. I am in a battle against it. And, and, there is, and, and here, here's what that is an indicator to us. There is no arriving at perfection in this life. There will be no arriving in perfection in this life. There will be a battle for perfection, but there will never be a day where on this side of glory that we will say, wow, I've got sin completely beat. It's always abiding in us. And that's why we have to be real, we have to be honest, we have to be transparent, because that's what Scripture tells us. But there's a second thing. Sin is always abiding in us, and it is always acting or attacking us. Always. If you go to the Romans 7 passage, Paul says that because sin dwells in him, evil is always close at hand. That's what he says. The sin that dwells in me, evil is always close at hand. He's never living above the clouds. Even in all of his missionary journeys, even in all his preaching, in all his praying, in all the things that God has done in his life, evil is always close at hand. That's living vigilantly. That's being sober-minded. And so, and, and so look at some other passages that, that show us how sin is acting. Galatians 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see the struggle? I mean, we all ought to be able to say, yes, this is real. If you're a Christian, you are able to say, I definitively identify with that. Listen listen to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. And look at this. Underline it in your Bibles. Go there. Put an underline under it. It says, and the sin which clings so closely, clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sin is still clinging to us closely, even while we're running the Christian life. And it can weigh us down. It can distract us. It can cause us to falter and stumble. So we've got to be aware of it. Look at the third verse, James 1.14. But each person is tempted. He's telling the church this, Christians, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Look what James says. He, it, it's inward focus. Again, we in the church, we, 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 got it, we, we got it all upside down. We're, we're constantly thinking about out there, and we're not looking in here. And he says, then desire, when it was conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when you put all of this together, and you land us right back to Colossians, we're seeing that Scripture interprets Scripture, right? And so, 
all of these scriptures come right underneath Colossians and says, yep, there is indwelling sin. It abides in us and attacks us. It is always acting. And so the conclusion here is that sin is a powerful force, like rebel power still loyal to a destroyed dictator. Sin attacks us and arises in our lives. Sin, the indwelling sin, it's like a cancer. A cancer that we might, that might be in us, and then we find out that it's become dormant or it's gone in remission. But what that means is, is that it will eventually, at some point, potentially, a cancer can resurface. But here's the thing with sin. It will always resurface. It will always attack. And that's what Paul is getting at. And it attacks us with fury and fierceness. This is why, again, going back to the Puritans, the Puritans highlight that sin is, this is, again, John Owen. He says, sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, and always tempting. And therefore, the Christian life, listen, there are no vacations. There are no days off. There are no breaks. There's none of us that can rise up and just say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it is the big deal. Because if Paul's telling us we should kill it, it is a threat and an enemy. And in addition to that, we often want to cage sin, not kill it. Well, I just take this sin, and I can just put it in a cage, And I can hide it somewhere down in the basement of my heart. And then I can just eventually, this cage, this beast called sin, I can put that beast in a cage and I can hide it. And then I can just every once in a while let that beast out and and I can keep it tame and I can keep it under control. We are fooling ourselves. It will eventually attack. It will destroy. And though no sin because of our positional standing in Christ, we are secure in our salvation. But listen, sin still destroys and wrecks lives, homes, families, hearts, testimonies. And so let us with seriousness consider what Paul is saying here. Can I get practical with you? Do we understand Christians, I'm talking here as a Christian, do we understand the corruption of our old natures? And if you're an unbeliever, do you realize that sin will eventually take you to eternal judgment? And for Christians, what we need to recognize is is that the, the corruption of our old natures. Do we tend to think that we've arrived? Do we think for one minute that we can produce anything in our lives that is not tainted by sin? No. Everything is tainted by sin. Everything. It's always clinging closely. Does God receive what we do with grace and mercy? Absolutely. But that grace and mercy is because of Christ, not us. And what that does for us is it helps us live realistically. Helps us live realistically. And so that leads to one other question in Paul's command. Right? So what does it mean to mortify? What is the doctrine of indwelling sin? Well, how do we mortify it? I mean, that seems to be an important question. Fighting this battle and killing sin is impossible in and of ourselves. That's why God has given us the Holy Spirit. So the work of killing sin is not for us to create lists and check them off. The work of killing sin is not for us to create, just create a, a whole, uh, you know, whole array of habits that we'll just try to do and then that'll correct it. Not that having good habits and 
all those things are a bad thing. But the point is, is that nothing we have in our own strength can kill sin. That's why the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So by the power of the Spirit, we put sin to death. But we're still left with a question. But what does that mean? Right? By the power of the Spirit indwelling in us, how then do we kill sin? Well, here's what the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who comes to guide us in all truth through Scripture and to glorify Christ. And so what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is that He brings us to the Word of God. So whenever we are talking about the Holy Spirit, let us make sure we understand that the Word and the Spirit work together. So the Spirit uses the Word to kill sin. What does the Word of God tell us? Well, I can just give you just a few things, right? How do we kill sin? Set your mind on Christ and the things above. See what he said earlier? In other words, Scripture tells us that we should think about Christ and his Lordship. And as we think of Jesus, it stirs our affections. And our love for him draws us away from our love for sin. Here's another thought. Get the word of God and the gospel in your heart. The Holy Spirit does that, right? He takes the word. He implants it in our hearts. And the word does the work in us, killing sin. And there's all sorts of means of grace that the Spirit uses as the Word is in us. That's why we need to meet together. That's why we need to be under the Word, preached and taught. That's why we need to be meditating upon Scripture. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we fast. These things we do, not as means that we earn grace or as just steps in a process that will just eradicate sin, but all of those things together bring the Word of God to our heart and set Christ before us. But here's the heart of it. The heart of it in killing sin is to cut the root of sin. Cut the root of sin. So if we're going to kill sin, we have to destroy the supply lines. And the Word of God does that. And the Word of God teaches us to hate sin. The Word of God teaches us that sin is an enemy and that we are to to despise and loathe that enemy. And as a result, we want to put that enemy of indwelling sin to death. And then what happens is the Spirit works in us as he kills the root, he will then through us bear the fruit. And the fruit is what he eventually gets to. Okay? And Paul is very specific. We're going to get to the catalog in just a second. But he's very specific, right? Put sin to death. But he doesn't just end with the things we have to put to death. He also will take us eventually to the things we should put on. Put on Christ. And so, and so that's how we mortify sin, through the Spirit and the Word of God, setting our mind on Christ, getting the Word in our heart, cutting the root of sin, and then bearing fruit and causing us to pursue the very opposite of the deeds of the flesh. And so that's the command, to kill sin. 
That leads to a second observation. There is a catalog of sin. So what Paul does is he starts big picture. Hang here with me. He he starts big picture, right? That which is in you. And then what he does is he gets very invasive. And he gives two lists. We're going to look at the first list. Two lists. One is sexual and the other is social. One has to do with sexual immorality and the other one has to do with our social relationships. I just said it. Paul gets invasive. He gets impersonal. He gets very personal. He does not hesitate to invade our privacy and to touch those areas in our life that we might think are just hidden and away from everyone else. He does not hesitate to tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. Hear me on that. The Word of God does not hesitate to tell us what we can and cannot do with our bodies. And so it is important for us to see here that anytime you come to a list in the New Testament letters, Paul will always begin that list, either first or second, dealing or at least acknowledging sexual immorality as one of the top things that we have to put to death. In fact, in the opening of our worship, we just recognize the implication of some of the commandments. These lists are just a, 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 a restating of what is in the moral law of God. So let's look at this. First catalog. The first catalog deals with sexual immorality. Look at the progression. So he says, put sin to death, and he says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now here's what Paul does, is he actually starts with the act of sin, and then he works backwards. So he he starts with the visible behavior, and then he goes all the way backwards and digs right into our soul. First thing is sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. It includes everything from prostitution to pornography, which would involve images, writings, or acts. Scripture is clear that those things are sinful. That sexual relationship is created by God to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage in any form of sexual gratification, encounter, or activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman is forbidden and sinful. And for that matter, any sexual behavior outside of the bond of marriage between a man and a woman is absolutely sinful according to the Word of God. And therefore, we must put this to death. So Paul says immorality. Then he moves to impurity. This has to do with the contamination of character, which then influences what we do. Impurity flows from what we think about, what we put in our mind, what we set before our eyes. We become what we think. That's why Jesus tells the Pharisees that everyone who's even looked upon a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery. And what Jesus does is is he exposes all of humanity with that statement. That we are all filled with sinfulness. Sinfulness. 
Acts proceed from thoughts. And those thoughts can begin to shape our character. It is the lustful contemplation and dwelling on that which is contrary to the will of God. That's what is meant by impurity. Move to the next one. Passion and evil desire. The word passion has to do with bodily urges, physical urges, and mental thinking. It, it, the word passion refers to uncontrolled urges of our bodies, our appetites. And what passion is, sinful passion, is really good desires that have gone bad. Desire is not evil. Look at the text. In fact, the adjective evil desire is what's used. Evil desire. Desire is not evil, especially the desires and appetites that are ours that come from creator, the creator in creation. But what evil desire does is it eliminates God and it enthrones self to be served or gratified. And what evil desire does is it fuels passion. Evil desire fuels our bodies to want to do that which God has condemned. That's what's happening in the old nature. That's what Paul's driving at, and he's saying we have to kill immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. But then notice what Paul does. He goes one more step. Look at the text. Covetousness, which is idolatry. So we started with the act of sin, and now we're at the root of sin. What is the root of sin? What is the root of sexual immorality? It's, it's covetousness. Covetousness is the last of the Ten Commandments. It is hunger or wanting for something that is not ours and has been forbidden. Coveting is idolatry of self and sinful desire of making something else more important than God. That's what coveting is. I want this. I don't care what God says. And because I want that, I'm going to take that even though he has forbidden it. Because I believe I am king. That's our old nature. That is, that is, I mean, that is the sinful nature. You know what Paul has done here by starting going there and working backwards? He has shown you where the act started. The act is not isolated. It began somewhere. It began with the idea of wanting that which is forbidden. And what he does is, is he does a CAT scan of our sinful natures. And when he does that CAT scan, here's what we see. We see the fruit of sin all the way down to the root of sin. And he shows us that idolatry is closely related to immorality and every other sin. The idolatry of self. We idolize self, our old natures do. This is what you see going on in the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve, there they were, standing there in the Garden of Eden, and she saw the fruit, and what did she see? She saw that it was good to eat, and then she desired it. She saw it, she desired it, and then she acted on it. And Adam stood there in the shadows, doing nothing, saying nothing. He knew the Word of God. He knew the glory of God. But in his silence, he did nothing. And the whole world and all of our natures have been plunged into that same disobedience. Do you not see how evil our sinful natures are? That we would take the good thing that God has made, the good thing that God has made, the fruit, and, and what happens? The fruit becomes God. The fruit is exalted above the word of God because self has taken the place of God. God. 
I mean, when I think about that from that angle, I realize what Paul meant. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. That I would take the gifts of the creator and worship the gifts over the giver. And even though we have been born again and saved by grace, there's not a person in here, if we're honest, that would say, yes, that tendency is still there. And it is warring against the new nature brought by Christ. And when you tie that down into sexual immorality, we objectify people. We make what God created for beauty and oneness and we make it about us with no thought to the other person's well-being, whether it be their emotional well-being, their mental well-being, their physical well-being, or their spiritual well-being. Do you not see how sinful our sinful natures are? Again, I just want to be practically real and and, and, and helpful for you. Reading this list stirs us. Because what Paul does is he confronts us with these sins. All of us are confronted with these sins in one way or, the, or another. All of us on some level, if we take that category, we could say that we are sexual sinners. No matter where it falls in that list, Paul's saying, if this is in you, kill it. So we must kill all sexual sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, especially given that we are surrounded by it and our culture is consumed by it. So again, think about this personally. What are the supply lines that fuel sexual temptation? Phones, devices, Computers, ghost apps, ghost apps like Snapchat, unhealthy relationships. But the reality is technology, technology, technology is now the most prominent supply line and gateway to our souls. And it is destroying our society, beginning at the youngest of ages. The statistics are staggering. I mean, the statistics of when a young child is exposed to explicit things is absolutely mind-boggling. And then you add to that the reality of the pressures that puts on young people. Just a recent release from the CDC that two, one out of three young ladies consider suicide and taking their own lives because of the pressure that's on social media. In church, there's no not me. There's no not my kid. There's no not my spouse. There's no like, okay, well, that's, that's you saying this, but it doesn't apply. It applies to all of us. Most friends that I have, most mentors that I have that are willing to have this level of a conversation on this, I mean, guys that I can speak with openly and share in accountability with, you, you know, they would agree that a man's wife should have all of his passwords and should be able to look at his phone instantly without hesitation. The same for children. Isn't it shocking that we have a, a, an age where if you're going to drive, you have to go through, I mean, months of training? 
because of the dangers of driving and all of the things on the road, but we take these and we stick them in the hands of our kids and young people with no direction, with no counsel, with no thought to the dangers and the evils that exist. Listen, I'm not telling you this because I've figured it out. I'm just simply telling you this because it's real. And it's where this text meets us in real life. This is the constant conversation that we are having in our home. I mean, for years, where I'm reminding them that we must live openly and openly with our devices, have accountability with others, others who will love you, not condemn you, but walk with you and who help you. And always echoing to them that you cannot trust yourself. And you cannot trust yourself. And because of that, you must take every step necessary to kill sin within you. I remember years ago, not just remember, but a dear friend of mine, as we were processing this, we, we had the kind of like accountability where, and, and I hesitate saying things like this because I don't want it to sound, I mean, it's just where you are in the battle, and I hope you take it that way, but we had the kind of relationship that at any point he wanted to walk into my house and just like barge in, come to wherever I am, maybe with some limitation there, and grab a device and look on it anytime that's permissible. Because there's a real danger here, folks. And so, and, so, and, and so with that in mind, we have to read this passage and say, okay, put to death these sins. And it leads us to this question. Is there a sexual sin that has taken control of your life? Listen, what we do with our bodies cannot be dismissed as trivial. Young people who might be in here that need guidance from an older mentor. Maybe they're parents who just need to have an honest conversation and, and, and balance sincere prayer and get real help and walk with people who are walking in the same trenches and then take biblical truth and apply it into your family and to your life. And so there's a command, right? And then the command gets really personal because now there's a catalog Now there's real things that the people in the church have got to identify and go after by the power of the Spirit. Paul's not playing child's games, kids' games. But then he ends this section with a compulsion. Look at verse 7. In these, he says, verse 6, I'm sorry. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So now what Paul does is he says, command, kill sin, catalog of sin, go after these things because they're real and they're there and they're serious. And for us, we've expounded in all the ways that those things are coming in at us. But then he gives us reasons, compulsions, motivations, and there are two of them. One, kill sin because We have to recognize the coming of the wrath of God. The first compulsion is a reminder that the wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
The wrath of God is the holy, righteous fury of our perfectly holy and good God. And because God created all that is good and beautiful, He must come against all that is a perversion of it. And may that break our hearts. Not just of what we see all around us and what we, are, what we see within us, but the people who are lost around us who need to hear the gospel. Paul says, kill sin because the wrath of God is coming against sin. And here's what that does for the Christian. You know what that does for the Christian? In this one sense, it causes us to pause and to realize that, you know what, sin is serious. But it also turns our attention to the cross. Because on the cross, hear me, Christ bore the wrath of God for our sin. And do you know what that means? That means that Jesus died for every lustful thought, every evil desire, every secret sin, every wicked deed, all the sins that I have ever committed. Jesus Christ bore the penalty and the punishment for those sins. And so when the tempter comes, And when we are battling with those sinful desires, your greatest weapon against the sin that dwells in you is the cross upon which Christ died. Be reminded that he bore the wrath for that sin, that he was judged in your place for that sin, and let the gospel become the very dagger that drives into the very heart of sin and kills it. The old hymn says, we look to the cross and we see him there who made an end to all of our sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. May that be plastered into our souls. May that be stuck onto our devices. May that be placed onto our computer screens. May the truth of the gospel lead us to kill sin. And if you're here today and you're lost and you're not saved, listen, the wrath of God is coming, but you can be saved. You can be forgiven of any sin. If you just simply repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes us to the wrath of God. But as a Christian, the wrath of God is the reminder of the cross. And the cross becomes the very means by which the Spirit kills sin. But Paul does one other thing. He says, recognize the coming of the wrath of God, but also remember your former way of living. Look what he says in verse 7. In these you two once walked. They defined you. They, you were your identity. You were living in them. But something changed. Remember your former way of living. Christian, remember. When the old man is, is, the old nature is raging against the new nature, you and I need to remember that we've been set free The Spirit came into the dungeon of our souls and unshackled us 
The chains are gone. So when we are tempted, we need to be reminded, I was once in those chains. Why do I need to take those and put them back on when I need, when I have been raised with Christ? So God help me to take my eyes off of these sins that entice me and place them on the Son of God who has set me free. And for me to not, what does Paul say in Romans? To not submit our members back to that old slavery. Spurgeon said, let the remembrance of thy bondage forbid thee to enter that net or those chains again. And so our compuls- the, the compulsion that Paul gives here is clear. And that leads us to a very clear and simple conclusion. Our greatest enemy is what? It is sin. It is indwelling sin. But aren't you glad that when Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Aren't you glad he didn't say all of my list of virtues? <laughs> aren't you glad that he didn't say... Aren't you glad he didn't, he didn't say my ability to keep the Ten Commandments? Because we've already broken them all. Aren't you glad that he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he has delivered me. And he has victory in Christ. And so today, as we think about this, if you're not saved, he will save you. And every believer in this room He will aid you in killing sin. So be killing sin, lest it be killing you. Will you come to Christ? What sin right now do you need to be actively putting to death? How about today? Say, God, by the power of the gospel, I want this to die daily in my life. Let's pray. Father, your word is breathed out. And even now, Lord, I pray that you would do the work in all of our hearts. That as we look deep in our souls, whatever that, whatever that might be, that's, that as, as believers that are in this room, as we think about those things in our heart, may we confess those things to you. And may you do the work of mortifying, of killing those sins so that we can be more conformed to the image of your son and reflect the grace of the gospel. Give us a vision of what Christ has done on the cross so that we will take sin seriously and that we will be about the duty and the business of fighting the old nature. Thank you for what you've given us in Christ. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the word. And now may it do its hard work in us. And may your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.